synthesis of walking is quite fast. It's, well, it's more running, it's, it's, it's two lots of running and one walking. So it's actually, we're doing like 66% moving. Do you think we've uh, not got Chinch's complete undivided attention? <laughs> Sorry, no, no, we're just talking about the, the, the interval training we're going to do uh, when it cools down. Because it was, we went running yesterday at, on, in the treadmill in the gym at three o'clock and it was about 35 degrees. It wasn't the best idea when you're over 50. We, nearly, we both nearly died. But we got fitter. But you did something at eight o'clock this morning? Yes, with Joao. We're doing legs. Wow. You're back with Joao. Oh, Joao's back, fully masked up. Yep, yep. We're back in the gym. Oh, yes. Does, uh, Spray, does, he sprays everything constantly. He's just constantly spraying everything. He's very <laughs> constantly cleaning it. He is. <laughs> spraying everything. Even people. Spraying he's people like in a, the face. A territorial cat. He's, no, he's very, uh, he is a very health conscious. And this has just kind of gone off the charts. He's, uh, yeah, he's just spraying everything. But you can't wipe it. You've just got to spray it. Wiping it spreads the infection. So it's just, he sprays everything. So everything is like soaked with sanitizer. And he thinks it works. So we just got to go with it. And he's bigger than us and he'd kill me if I complained. So my question is, is that a lot of people are, are saying that you can really sense a person's beauty in their eyes. Now, if Joao, who we all know is an incredibly beautiful person inside mm. and out. But if yes. he's wearing a mask all the time, um, can you see that beauty through Joao's wow eyes? I haven't really looked deep into his eyes. That's one area I tend to look at his guns, his quads, and his buttocks mainly. But I will, now I, yeah, I see what you mean. It's kind of the mask is focusing me on his eyes. So next time I, I see him, I will look deeply into his eyes, and then I'll go straight to A&E to have my broken nose repaired. You shouldn't be intimidated by his wow. I'm not intimidated change. by him. It he sounds like you are. He knows more than me, stronger than me, faster than me, and he does, he does... He can kick people in the face. We respect, no, no, I respect him. He has some respect for me. Are you being bullied by Joao? <laughs> no, 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 not bullied. I wouldn't say bullied. No, that's not the term I would. Coerced, coerced, I would say, into, into doing what he tells. But he is right. The thing is, he is right what he tells me to do. So how can I, and he's making me better. So how can I complain? We yeah. did legs this morning. We did uh, chest and back yesterday. So it's legs, it's a legs day today so we did I, I go off and do my own legs because nikki gets trained by joao on her leg she can do normal legs i haven't got normal legs so i have to go off and do my own special program for my leggy pegs what's the portuguese for don't skip legs day uh we no one skips legs day steve there, there isn't there isn't a translation for that because it never happens <laughs> Proper people who train properly, legs are vitally important. Vitally important. If you skip legs, you might as well just, just go down the beach and drink beer. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, who is in kind of quarantine. Rory Smith, who has kind of been in quarantine. And Andy Hinchcliffe, who will definitely be in quarantine when he returns from his first trip to Portugal in way too long. Chinch, you are in Portugal for the first time in months. Five months. It's the longest we've gone without being in Portugal, going to Portugal. So it's great to be back. We've done a lot of cleaning because it's been quite dusty, the apartment, because there's been a lot of stuff, a lot of building going around here. So I've had to do a lot of cleaning, kind of, you know, hoovering and mopping and that type of thing. So there's a price to be paid, but we are here for 10 days. So, you know, a day of cleaning is, is a price to pay. Is it, are you saying this is a real downside of the whole COVID-19 thing, Chinch, that you being in Portugal is no longer a reason for you to not partake in set-piece menu because we now all know, we know about Zoom mm. and we know you've got Wi-Fi. So, you know, you're going to be with us every week of the year. But you want me to be with you, don't you? 
Or are you trying to, in a, in a roundabout way, you're saying, well, you know, if your Wi-Fi doesn't work, we'll just leave it and the three amigos will carry on. Is that, is that, what, we're, is that what you're trying to say? Or? Well, we just assumed that a lot of the reason for you being in Portugal was to get away from us occasionally, just to have a bit of well, brief space with your own footballing thoughts. It's part of the, it's to get away from probably Hugh more than anything else, Steve, to be fair, because I quite like you and, and Rory's okay. But no, I, I go to Portugal because I work damn hard. And, you know, I've only got a small bike, but I ride it damn hard. So I, I need to have some downtime. And, and coming away here just gives me a chance to uh, just depressurize, you know, train, get bullied, by, get coerced by Joao, train properly. And I feel better when I come back to do the tremendous work that I do when I get home. Uh, talking of the fact that you are having some downtime and you work very hard at home, could you tell us what Nikki is cooking for you, please? Uh, well, to say it's scrambled eggs on toast is doing it a disservice because it, i don't know what's in the eggs she won't tell me what the eggs are unbelievable there's three eggs and it's on toasted carcassa have what's you ever had what's you, carcassa carcassa is like a what's the what's the shape that's like a square but then it's kind of been knocked slightly that's not a rhombus is it that is trapezoid a trapezoid what a oh, trapezoid. Is it a trapezoid not a trapezoid so it's kind of kind of an off an off center square and it's, it's like a ciabatta, but not as long. And then slice it, toast it, butter it, and then have the eggs on it. It's, carcassa is, is the world's greatest bread. It's tremendous. It's the president of breads. Is it like um, there's no Portuguese for don't skip legs day? There's no English for carcassa because there is no carcassa in England. They're not of the same shape. Yeah, like ciabattas and, and kind of crusty rolls. But still, I feel carcassa is the best. And having it with these eggs is just tremendous well before you get distracted by that chinch can you tell us what the football is today do you know what we're talking about yes it's um, a person who does one job really well and then moves into another area kind of doing a similar job but doing it equally as well that's that is an excellent and much more yeah. pithy uh, introduction to the subject today we're talking about the best player managers not those who manage while they're playing but those who have proved to be very good at both playing and managers, the best player and managers, if you like clunkiness, we'll go with Chinch's idea. And we'll be talking about who, why, and most importantly, if they would indeed fit into an SPM Select 11. Just as Chinch returns to Portugal, we return to our Select 11. So I'm sure our discussion will have exactly the same effect on the footballing world as our near constant haranguing of the five subs idea, immediately ditched by the Premier League, almost certainly because of what we said, I'd imagine, uh, cheering from the box which is filled by Steve, or as he's renamed himself, Gantry Gallivanter. Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. We have more bear news. Hang on, which bear is it? The bear? Is of bear? Bex bear. Or the actual bears. We have news about bears. Mm, oh, thank God. Oh, Steve, Steve's not been caught wandering naked around Didsbury. Thank <laughs> God for that. That would be naturism news, which would alliterate, so I'd normally like it. But we have more bear news. Art McGalian, who is our regular correspondent from Minneapolis, and apparently he lives not far from Buffalo, Minnesota. There's more than one Buffalo. Oh, come on, America. Make your mind up. Uh, he has sent us an email with the title, Just a Heads Up. In the email, he includes a link to a CNN online article entitled, what not to do in a bear attack. Mm. It turns out the National Park Service in the States has been having a bit of fun on Instagram. They, they do have a sarcastic street, the NPS. Anyway, the article goes on. The best thing to safely remove yourself from a bear confrontation mm. is to move away slowly and sideways so that you can keep an eye on the bear without mm. tripping. Incredibly technical. This. Bears are not threatened, apparently, when you move sideways. But like dogs, 
they will chase fleeing animals. Mm. It goes on to say, do not climb a tree. Both grizzlies and black bears can climb trees. And then it says, do not push down a slower friend, even if you think the friendship has run its course. <laughs> Joking. This is Stay calm. Watson. This is, this, yeah. Stay calm and remember that most bears do not want to attack you. They usually just want to be left alone, don't we all? To avoid an encounter with a bear, hike and travel in groups. Do not allow bears access to your food and leave the area if you see a bear. Also, try and make sure to listen to any popular football podcasts with headphones, it says in that article. Chinch, is that some of your... See, um, that might be a rhombus, you know. That is a rhombus. I think, I think a, a rhombus trapezoid or a trapezoid is more rectangular shifted. But a rhombus is the kind of the diamond shape. And that is more diamond shape. Yeah. that's a di Well, it depends how you hold it. I wonder. Oh, there we go. It's not, it's not that shape anymore. Oh, hang on. <laughs> what, we, look, what we already know is that effectively, Chinch is eating a ciabatta, which oh. has been cut with a different shaped cutting implement. No, 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 no. no, no. You're, no. Hang on. Hang on, this is all, we're all going to look like idiots. Do you know what that is? Do you know what that is a prime example of? It's a bloody parallelogram, isn't it? Yeah. I thought par parallelograms are like rectangles off kilter. I thought that's what a tra trapezoid or a trapezoid. I thought a square off kilter, off centre, is a rhombus. Is like anyone Googling this? A rhombus is actually... Um, it's a diamond. dimensions, yeah, they're equal, as opposed to being slanted and slightly unequal. What you've yes. got is a parallelogram. That is, that is what you've got. But this is not, Steve, this is not... You bite into a ciabatta and you bite into carcassa. Two very, very different experiences. Very different beasts. Would you feed one to a bear? Judging by the article, um, uh, you, you do not allow bears access to your food. But surely by sharing with them, you would help to civilise them. <laughs> well, that's Art, and thanks for the heads up, Art. Meanwhile, from Joe Larkin... Dear Rory Smith and the other people who contribute sometimes, I am a long-time listener to the pod after it was recommended to me by Big Buffalo Sam Crocker and have listened long enough to, in football terms, have always been a fan, much in the same way as someone might say of Jack Grealish in October last year. In recent episodes, I have very much enjoyed The Bear Chat and have felt compelled to email for the first time because of my own experiences as Andy is right to be scared of bears, but perhaps should be more scared than he currently is. That is because bears are currently infesting the EU mainland. Chinch, where are you? I can't, I can't give my location away. A bear might be listening. <laughs> well, suffice to say that you're on the EU mainland and that'll do for yeah. now. On eight, however, this is, this is a distancing you geographically, so you'll be much, much happier. On a trip to Romania a couple mm. of years ago, says Joe, a friend of mine had read that Romania had lots of bears. And we jokingly spent the trip asking locals about the bear population, thinking that some may exist, but it wouldn't be an issue in everyday life. Needless to say, we were wrong. Apparently on country roads around Brasov, that's Transylvania incidentally, bears are often seen, and in school, children are taught how to react when confronted with a bear. Well, they read CNN, that's the uh, the, the advice that we've got. Indeed, a man in a bar in Bucharest who looked like Diego Costa, he says, told us that when he had taken his bins out of his apartment block the previous week, a bear had popped out of the wheelie bin next to the one he was depositing his rubbish into. We discovered that bears roam widely, depending on the climate, and can roam into other countries too, Chinch. So to conclude, yes, the chances of wild bears appearing on UK shores are slim, but it certainly warrants some fear on Andy's part. Or perhaps, without being too political, we should attribute the Brexit vote to the underlying bear fear and thank our lucky stars that 52% of the general public are compassionate individuals who do not want to see Southern Kent infested with bears. Stay vigilant. Uh, that's from Joe Larkin. 
So hold on a minute. An animal jumps out of a bit. Has he been watching Sesame Street? Because that's Oscar <laughs> that comes out of a... Doesn't he come out of a kind of a, 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 a trash can? He does. He lives in a trash can. So there was a bear in the bin. Kinch, don't you feel that the, the rolling hills uh, just beyond where you are on the Algarve are, are, are the perfect... Steve, stop narrowing down my location. Now you've told the bears I'm on the Algarve. <laughs> so Joe was recommended the pod by Buffalo Sam Crocker. This next email is from Sam Crocker. Dear Steve, to use the traditional SPM greeting, I don't think I've been in touch for a while. After being credited at one point with being your most frequent emailer in the relatively early days, I'm happy to report that my mental health and social life have improved considerably, and I am now finding new ways to spend my time other than hassling you fine gentlemen. That is not to say I'm not enjoying this wonderful podcast any less. I just literally cannot be asked to write in. Good. I wanted to build upon the excellent comments from previous correspondents about the expectations of professional footballers, uh, mostly in our uh, relegation flakeout episode, SPM 187. Uh, he writes as he's just finished watching Arsenal lose to Aston Villa, thinking to himself, if I was an Arsenal player, can I be asked? And the resounding answer was, of course, no. As well as having nothing to play for, they endured their worst season in about 25 years, one they must have been desperate to end. In my office job equivalent, whatever that would be, I would probably doss about with a spreadsheet for a bit, declare it pointless, and then clock off at 4pm. Why do we expect more from footballers? They are, at the end of the day, just human beings with a need for motivation to go about their relentless day-to-day -day lives, just like everyone else. Without this motivation, their performance will drop, like everyone else. Is that so bad? I wondered the same about Liverpool after their loss to Arsenal. They're basically on the office job equivalent of their notice period, which, as everyone knows, you sit back for a month, do as little work as you can get away with, and then leave with your head held high to your next challenge. Even coming from my own lazy personality, a low-level existentialism means that I can barely be asked even when it does mean something. Do we have any justification for holding players to a higher standard than ourselves? Lots of love, says Sam Crocker. Uh, elite athletes are... Uh competitive beings aren't they mm. so I, I don't think the the parallel quite exists in that way to try and add a serious point to a entirely non-serious piece of contribution we, we shouldn't really be holding elite athletes to the same standard should we as the general workforce population no i think that's right i don't i, don't, I think the reason they are where they are is because they are better than us they are better than and us therefore when when they start when they stop being better than us and become mere humans, it's okay to be disappointed. It, on, on what level can I be better than you three? It's just nonsense. You Your don't hold of... me. When I was playing, okay, I, I did play to a very high standard, international standard. But but why would you why would you hold me to in terms of my work? Why, why would you your, hold me to higher standards? Because of the demands that that being an elite athlete places on you on on any on any individual who chooses to pursue it the, the sacrifices oh. you have to make the, de the dedication you have to show the the kind of relentless focus the, the attention to detail the thinking about the chinese food it's it's all it, it all just makes makes you you were better than us now you're the same as us but you I'm were the same we're, we are on the same level steve yes we are now it's the minute you you minute mm -hmm. you retire or the minute you suffer the career-ending injury you take on the characteristics yeah. of the, the more general level of the population. But yeah, mm. unlike you, we would decide what we wanted from the Chinese menu whilst looking at the Chinese menu. Yeah. But because of yeah. your commitments yeah. mm -hmm. to Chinese food, you are thinking <laughs> about it long before you've even got a copy of the menu. In your I'm, actually equally... think, I'm actually thinking about it while I'm working. Yeah. So to be fair, thanks for, for mentioning the career-ending injury, Steve. That's, that's a really lovely thought. I, I, I descended from Mount Olympus into the cesspit that you all live in. Is that, is that basically Effectively, how we're looking now, at it? Okay. Now, to an extent, you're worse than us. But yes. the, 
the, the de- it's not just the dedication to thinking about Chinese food. It's the fact that you were thinking about Chinese food whilst shepherding Tony Daly out for a throw-in. That's actually yes, multitasking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I've just noticed that uh, Rory has also changed his name uh, on his William. Square Zainab Badawi's 20 Hotels, which I do believe is your SPMPLPL team name as well. Zainab Badawi's 20 Hotels is my go-to fill-in-a-form for anything selection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Chinch, we should also pay tribute to the fact that you had probably three or four career-ending injuries, so it was really only one that got you. Aidan Roberts is the latest to get in touch with some managers most likely to. This continues our series of questions about which manager is most likely to do something where the answer due to previous frequency is not allowed to be Sean Dyche, Nigel Pearson, Graham Potter, or indeed any other person we feel it's too easy to make a joke about. So Aidan contributes these fine efforts. Manager most likely to answer question H11 in the 2021 UK census. What type of central heating does this accommodation have with a candle? Roy Hodgson. Mm. And manager most likely to celebrate the end of lockdown by going for a facial? Daniel Farker. I think that's harsh. I I think that's misunderstanding Daniel Farker. Well, Aidan, you've misunderstood Daniel Farker. I don't think Daniel Farker has facials. I'm going to stick that out there. Do you know the thing with Daniel Farker? He always seems to have a sheen. I don't think it's sweat. But he seems to have a, a sheen upon his face. He glows. Maybe he's pregnant. He, no, he, he shimmers. I think he shimmers. I think that that might be some sort of beautifully supple skin after having a facial. But um, that's something that you clearly... I think Daniel Farker's quite... He looks like a, like a longshoreman, does Daniel Farker. I just, you can imagine him kind of hauling stuff at the docks. Until you, you hear him speak. Does. Until you hear him speak. And then you think, <laughs> yes, whoa, Daniel what's Farker, happening here? Who's inside the, that body to speak like that? Manager most likely to have... To stand accused of grafting someone else's face onto his body, Daniel Farker. <laughs> yes. Manager, we'll find a way. To be accused of being Nicolas Cage. <laughs> or indeed John Travolta. Yeah. Either uh, one, both, both equally both, guilty. <laughs> one's face and one indeed is off. Uh, finally, this email is from Emma Tangeren. Hi, set piece menu. She says, with an exclamation mark that suggests enthusiasm for which I am grateful. I'm writing an email to you because my boyfriend, Joe Hirsch, is obsessed with your podcast. He's turning 30 this week on Wednesday, and given COVID, it's kind of put a dampener on the day. We live in Brooklyn, and with the pandemic, our celebrations will be almost non-existent. When thinking about how I could make his birthday, I thought of your pod. Sometimes, she says, you read emails on the show, and I was hoping you would give him a birthday shout out in this week's episode. I know usually your emails are related to the sport itself, they're not. While I don't have a spreadsheet analysis or anything like the email from a fan you mentioned last week, she says, I figured it's worth a shot to send an email and ask. I don't watch a ton of football, but since we started dating, we listened to your podcast on our speakers and I have learned a lot. His favorite team is Tottenham, so it's now my favorite team too. Anyway, highly unlikely, she says, but I hope you take pity on this poor fan in Brooklyn and give him a shout out cheers from emma well emma i hope this has the kind of value that means that you don't have to spend any more money on him happy birthday joe hirsch in brooklyn very much happy birthday joe well done emma for finding a very clever way of having a really cheap birthday that's that's excellent work we have to be careful here because if we become that podcast that does birthday shout outs we should really only be doing significant birthday shout outs you know 30 40 50 we can't be doing like someone who's 33, but I really like him. He's my partner. It's his birthday. Can you give him a mention? If we do that, we're opening up the podcast to, to, to major criticism. I agree with Chinch. I have a question. Um, do we think it's fair on people to make them listen to the podcast that you listen to on speakers? I find podcast listening a very personal experience. I, I do not make Kate listen to the Slate podcast on David Duke, which I really enjoyed. It was excellent. She'd like it too. But I wouldn't expect her to sit and listen to it with me. So I, I feel as though Joe should maybe be grateful 
for having Emma mm. and I her just... being willing to listen to this gibbering nonsense. I, I obviously send my, my very best birthday wishes to Joe, but if he really loved us as much as he clearly loves or should love Emma for doing this for him, then he would make Emma listen to it separately on her own device because that would count for us as an additional listener. You should <laughs> not both yes. listen at the same time on the same device. And I also feel she's maybe listening with him just to, again, keep fueling their sex life because she can't really be that interested in this podcast. If she's a Tottenham fan now, he's a Tottenham fan, so then I'll be a Tottenham fan. Come on, you've got to be better I mean, than that. that. That is, I would say that's, that maybe worries me a little bit about the relationship. That, that, yeah. that if, if it doesn't work out, then she's going to be stuck with Tottenham for life, and, and that's yeah. not... That's it's heading for the need. rocks, isn't it? Well, I'm wondering if she's putting up with him to stick with us or putting up with uh, us to stick with him. Either way, (laughs) either way. The relationship's not going to last long, but happy birthday, Joe. (laughs) Uh, Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And let me tell you now, we have an incredibly high threshold for anything birthday related. Now, this week, Juventus appointed Andrea Pirlo as their new manager, a man about whom there are three relevant points worth making here. Number one. He was an excellent football player, including for Juventus. Number two, combining his inevitable managerial suit with his locks and facial hair will make him a very watchable sideline presence. And three, he has never managed a senior game and was only appointed Juve's under-23 coach just over a week prior. So Juventus have decided that they'd like him to be the latest of those world-class players who have turned out to be world-class managers. To be honest, there aren't that many. In fact, there might only be about 11 or so, which gives us a perfect opportunity to have the discussion while we formulate another trademark SPM Select 11 of elite players, elite managers. As we go along, I imagine our definition of elite will change depending on our desire to fill a position in our team. But still, let's hope there is a left back. Otherwise, we'll be left regretting another career choice made, or in this case, not made by Andy Hinchcliffe. We, We do have a severe problem, though. I cannot think of a single fullback. No, I think that is the issue here. Basically, Mm. the spine of this team is going to be phenomenal, but the formation is going to have to be a rather inventive two, 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 two. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Are are, are they kind of, we have to work backwards and say that there's clearly three or four that have to be in the team. So once they take their positions up, then we're kind of scrabbling around. We're having to shape it around the three or four very obvious choices. But fullbacks are, that's strange. A lot of fullbacks in the media... Doesn't seem to be a lot of fullbacks have gone in and been successful. Do you coaching. think it's because fullbacks inherently don't understand football? Well, I certainly didn't, as you can you probably realised over the last five years, is that I have absolutely no idea about football. Didn't when I played, have learned a bit more, still don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> There's also a bit of a dearth of strikers. Is there? I would, I would suggest really? that we, we are very good. Um, for midfielders and strikers or yeah. wide forwards. Who am I missing mm. for strikers? There's lots well, of wide forwards. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it, if you like. Should we, should we at least uh, frame our conversation in the fact that there are very few from which to pick, just generally speaking? Chinch, you, you had a manager in Joe Royal who was actually a very good player. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, a trophy winner, no less. Mm-hmm. Um, and what part of that excellence as a striker do you think made him a good manager because if if we're going to talk about him and of course the other example of an excellent player excellent manager Paul Jewell in your career and mm. that might be that might be worth mentioning at some point he's the Bobby but, Boucher of this team yeah he Howard is Kendall the was a very boy, good yeah Howard Kendall mm. was a good good player as well wasn't yes. he yeah. why, why, why do you think it's so difficult to translate a stellar footballing career 
to mm. a stellar managerial career? Because there's that old story, isn't there, about Glenn Hoddle, who would take, take England training sessions and say, look, I can do this, and then ask Sol Campbell to do it. Not you, because you could do it, obviously, and he didn't want yeah. to be embarrassed. Yeah. But he, he, he would not be able to kind of translate the innate ability that he had a, as, as a player to perhaps his ability to instruct and coach others. Yeah, I think Howard Kendall and Joe Royal, I would, there's a huge difference between, because to me it is all about, when you go into coaching, it's about knowing your stuff in terms of coaching, but also man management. So again, is it, is it the position that you play? It seems to be, looking at this, this list, it seems to be certain positions tend to produce people who are better at coaching and man managing. That, that's, what, that's what seems to be the oh. case. But, but, but Howard Kendall, basically, what, he, he wasn't, he, I never, I can't remember him coaching anybody what he did and his genius was actually signing players who were kind of ready-made to go straight into the team his, his really successful Everton team he bought the players they went into the team and were just very good players and then they they had a, a unity which again he, he tried to obviously engender but he didn't coach them Joe Royal and Willie Donachie coached to get the very best out of people I, I became a much better player than I, than I probably should have been down to their coaching so that's what I said about Joe Royal but again I don't think the fact that he was a striker then means that he's going to be a good it has to be the person that you are and your willingness to be able to, to pass on what you know and then manage people when things go well and go badly. I presume that's what, that's what modern coaching is all about. Not, not your success as a, a player. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a brilliant coach. We've seen it many, many times. Players I play with, Neville Southall, the best goalkeeper the world's ever seen, he was never going to be a coach. It didn't work out for him. So it doesn't necessarily go from one to the other. There is an assumption made, though, isn't there, that... Uh you would imagine that if you are a world-class elite player, you will often get more of an opportunity to flourish as a coach. There has been several. I always remember back to Brian Robson. And Brian Robson, when he, when he eventually retired as, as, as a footballer, he, he started off at Middlesbrough, didn't he? He was parachuted in as, as, a Middlesbrough, as a Middlesbrough manager. He was of the Alex Ferguson school. So we all thought that Brian Robson would be an excellent manager. Now, he turned out to be an okay manager. And he, he did have moments, noteworthy moments. But... The Andrea Pirlo thing, Rory, you wrote about it this week. And, and you, you made the, the, the differentiation between risk and gamble. Because mm. for Juventus, it's less of a risk because clearly they are incredibly successful and he doesn't necessarily have to do very much to win the Scudetto at any point in his near future. But what, why, why would Juventus think that Andrea Pirlo will be the next player who will potentially be on this list that we're going to create over the course of the next 10 years? I think it's less that they're sure he will be than it's worth probably rolling the dice and seeing if he, if he could be. And the, the two things that are kind of relevant to that, one, as you say, is the fact that, that the stratification of the game is such that, that Juve's kind of worst case scenario is probably winning the Stradetto by a point. That's kind of as bad as it's going to get for Juventus, and that's what happened under Maurizio Sarri. But the second is that, and I think this is what's really interesting. So there's always been this thing in England about, oh, isn't it a shame that, you know, when Liverpool or Arsenal or, or Man City or, or Man United or whatever want to appoint a manager, that they don't give it to Eddie Howe, or they don't give it to Sean Dyche, or they don't give it to, to this coach or Chris Wilder or, you know, whoever, whoever happens to be in vogue at the moment. Um, and I think the thing that gets lost when, when those big, those elite clubs go for the manager of, you know, Borussia Dortmund or FC Porto or whatever, is that the experience of managing a team in England, a small team in England to eighth place in the Premier League is much less relevant to how you'll do at Manchester United or Manchester City than, than having managed a club of comparable size in Germany or Italy or Spain. There's no, there's no real comparison between what it's the demands of managing Burnley or, or Bournemouth 
to managing Manchester United, they are they are completely different jobs. The the skills you require are totally different. The experiences you'll have are completely different. And ultimately, if you're looking to fill a role, you're much more likely to when they're putting the applications out, they're not looking for people who can make the step up. Just as w- when you apply for most jobs, you're at a disadvantage if you say, you know, they say we want th- this amount of experience at this level of company or this level of, of employment. And you say, well, I don't have that, but I do have this so I can grow into the role. You might get the job, but you also probably won't. Just There will be a candidate out there who, who can say, well, at this comparable company, I performed this same role to this level. So why don't you take me? And you get a ready-made kind of person to step in. And I think that's the way that the big clubs see it, which means that basically when Juventus look across Europe, they will see a couple of people who can, who can definitely do the job. Some of them are unrealistic. Guardiola and Klopp are difficult to, to hire. Some of them might be expensive, some like Pochettino. Uh, some of them might be a, have sort of vaguely comparable experience, Simone and Zaghi, but they're not quite sure and also be expensive. But if you, you know, if they look at Roberto De Zerbi, who's done a great job at Sassuolo, Juventus will probably look at that and think, well, we don't know if he can manage Juventus. We genuinely haven't. You had a great example at Milan last year where Marco Giampaolo went in as the kind of next big thing of Italian coaching and lasted four games. It just didn't work. The players didn't respond to him at all. The results were bad. Milan made a change, maybe too quickly, but they made a change. So I think increasingly the big clubs now think, well, look, we, the, the pathway for, for coaches to come through smaller teams and then get a big job is effectively defunct. So the only way we can try to get the next Guardiola unless we can appoint Guardiola, is by taking a pot shot on one of our former players. Which former player is best suited? Let's do Andrea Pirlo. And as much as it kind of, to me, as a fan of my generation, as, a, as someone who thinks that it should be the case that you should work your way up through, small, through the lower leagues and then through a smaller club and then you get success, you get, you get your reward, I kind of understand the logic, to be perfectly honest. I, I, I can see why the clubs are starting to think like that because... Ultimately, having experience is no longer a qualification because the experiences are not the same. So you can have 15 years at Burnley and it is not, the, it is not relevant experience to managing Juventus or Manchester United. It just isn't. So is, is there going to be less criticism if Pirlo doesn't work? There'll be less criticism from Juventus fans of the club for employing him because he's Pirlo. If you get someone who's, who's done it at other clubs and is the next best thing, and that doesn't work, there's going to be more criticism of that decision than bringing somebody in like Perlo, who's got no experience, but he, he is Andrea Perlo. So is that why clubs are it's a PR exercise to a degree as well? Yeah, you, just, you get the... You no get, exp- again, I understand what you're saying about playing for a top and playing at World Cups, and I can understand his mentality, but he's not, he's not coached anywhere else. So if you step in, yes, you can understand the club, the demands he's played at the very top level. But if that fails... Is there less criticism of Juventus for employing him, regardless of the, of the fact he hasn't got any, any experience? I think you get the fans on side. I think if it fails, then that there'll still be criticism. But equally, I think he might get more time than, say, De Zerbi, had he, had he gone in. Because there would have been an immediate suspicion as soon as there was a bad result that De Zerbi's not up to it. This is the wrong idea. Let's get somebody else. Let's get a bigger name. It's harder to do, to do, with, to do that with a legendary former player. Um, but also, I think the, the crucial thing is that you, you mentioned about World Cups and Champions Leagues and what have you. The players will automatically respect... Pirlo they will take advice from Andrea Pirlo because he's Andrea Pirlo in a way that I think a manager who's come up from that other background unless they're unless it's a kind of someone of Mourinho's level almost I think they might find it hard to win the players I think the players would at the super clubs would be would be immediately skeptical of someone coming in and saying a sort of 
watered down version of that old Brian Clough thing about put your medals in the bin we're going to win them better I don't think that I think that doesn't work anymore I, I think the players are effectively corporations they believe in their own brilliance and rightly so Rafa Benitez once said to me that I don't know whether this is I was meant to this was meant to be on the record probably not that he kind of stopped training at Real Madrid once and tried to kind of just say to Cristiano Ronaldo look for this move whatever they were doing you need to control it like this and it became pretty clear to him pretty quickly that Cristiano Ronaldo was not going to be taking technical advice from Rafael Benitez all of that stuff is not relevant to those super clubs. You don't, you're not a tech, it's what they used to say about international managers that you're not doing technical coaching, you're doing something else. And I think at smaller teams, because every smaller team now is built on young players, the coaches who do well at smaller teams are good technical coaches. The, t- the coaches that you need at super clubs do not have to be good technical coaches. They have to be a presence, they have to be an authority, they have to be a man manager, they have to kind of have that ability to bond the team together and get a balance. But a lot of the stuff that you, you learn at the smaller teams isn't relevant for the big clubs anymore. Yeah, I think what Rory has talked about there is, is effectively the situation we now find ourselves in. It's interesting that you know, he's drawn the comparison between the elite domestic teams now effectively being more like international teams than they are club sides because they pull together the very best players from all over the world, all over their, their particular continent perhaps. But they just need to manage those resources and respect in the dressing room has got to be, as we've seen with Zinedine Zidane at Real Madrid across two separate spells, the critical factor in that. The one exception with the, the Pirlo situation that it would make would have made sense at almost any other time over the last five years or so, for example, it's really the timing of it is really quite fascinating in that they only won the title by a point this season. They have been pushed close in the past by Roma and Napoli, but they, they won the title this season being pushed close by an Inter side that just had that little bit of a fade at a certain point in the season, which enabled Juventus to regather their momentum. But if you consider they only finished five points better off than Atalanta, that shows you just how susceptible they could be to a very slight wobble, because certainly Inter under Antonio Conte next season will see this as the door just being left ever so slightly ajar. And, that's, and we've talked about it in the past. That's what those teams that regularly finish in second or third place behind the dominant force in their division are lying in wait for, that glimmer of an opportunity. And Juventus may just, in taking this slight gamble, have presented the likes of, of Roma and Lazio, who have done well over the course of the last couple of seasons with that, with that sense of an opportunity going into next season, which should make Serie A all the more interesting. So if we're looking at who the super clubs employ, they're more likely to go down the Howard Kendall road where they're, they're giant clubs, they're corporations, they've already got great players. Howard Kendall didn't need to coach the players technically. Maybe Zinedine Zidane doesn't need to do that at Real Madrid. But if you're Joe Royal, you're going into a club like that and you want to be a technical coach, you want to improve... Do the players really need improving? So again, it's the, the type of coach that's going into these clubs. And maybe it is just handling these, because they're all, all basically superstars, aren't they? So is it more of a Howard Kendall, let's just keep everyone happy. I'll get you in a general formation that I think will work, but I'm not going to tell Lionel Messi how to control the ball because I would do that at another club, but clearly this, this is not, is is not going to work with him. So again, it's the kind of the personalities. That, so Perlo maybe fits that to a degree. If Juventus have all these stars and he can manage them, and he's not necessarily technically coaching them how to play football, which he... 
he shouldn't really need to do at that level, should he? So is that why they're looking at these these very different personalities and who they employ? It's, I think the, the inter- yeah, yes, and I think the interesting thing is that it's almost like you don't need to be a great tactician. I don't yes. think there's any emphasis particularly. The, the ones can you remember? The- I was going to say, can you remember someone who's gone into a, a club and completely changed tactically? how the club actually operates. Guardiola at Barcelona, is that an idea or was Barcelona no. kind of good? Is there anyone that's gone in and said, you know what, we're going to fresh sheet of paper, this is how we're going to do it from here on in. And well, Con- Conte and, and do well. Conte at Chelsea, but that's at a club that didn't really have that much of a yeah. tactical kind of it identity. It be different in Juventus and Real Madrid and Barcelona. You go in and say, actually, we're going to rewrite this. Because you, you know, Johan Cruyff, did, did he do that at Barcelona? Did he, did he kind of, did he set them all, break the mould to actually set them in motion? Yeah, that's that's the way the Cruyff the Cruyff legend sort of has it. How true it is, I can't remember. I, I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember watching Barcelona before Cruyff. I, I I doubt that before that they were like a long ball team. But <laughs> I suspect that Cruyff's ideas were, were were fresh and new and different at the time. So you probably have to credit Cruyff with it. Sarri tried it at Juventus. That was the whole point of Sarri's appointment was to try and sort of change Juventus's emphasis from being a team that was extremely strong defensively and extremely resilient into being more expansive and more attractive and it didn't really work and I think Giorgio Chiellini said at the start of the year that it's really hard to play your entire career one way and then do a total 360 so I think with a lot of these super clubs the the squads are so sort of set in stone the core of the squad is set in stone that that ident- that ident- they set the identity that passes down from generation to generation the coach has to come in and fit round it which is what Juve had in Max Allegri who's exactly that so he's like an Ancelotti style coach goes in sees what sees what he's got thinks right this works we'll do this finds a way to win wins Juve decided that doesn't quite work anymore but I don't know it's not true of all the super clubs but certainly a, a handful of them you, you can't be a tactic. You, you can be Julian Nagelsmann and have loads of brilliant tactics and loads of great ideas and this wonderful system. There is no point going into a PSG or a Juve or a Real Madrid and trying to shape it into your system because it won't work and because they can't shift the players. The players have to be, you know, the, the core of the players is, is not going to change quickly enough for you to be able to kind of shape it in your image. So now I think those, those teams mostly... If they can't get someone who can straddle both world, both worlds, like a Klopp or a Guardiola, and to be honest, there's only two or three of those knocking about. If they can't get one of them, they, they look around and I think they say, well, look, we, we don't need some brilliant technical coach. We don't need some tactical visionary who wants to change everything. What we need is someone who can kind of find a way to inspire the, this group of superstars and find a system that works for them. And that's less likely to come from someone who's done really well honing their ideas at a smaller team and more likely to come in the shape of a legendary former player. So are we saying then that the only person qualified, regardless of their own experience of being a manager, the only person qualified to manage world-class talent is somebody who has previously been a world-class player because they understand that element of it. And perhaps the only, uh, the only example outside of that reference point is somebody like Jose Mourinho who has such power of personality himself that he is able to kind of dominate and his previous experience whether managerial or as a player is irrelevant and even in that that situation but potentially Jose Mourinho's star is fading because it's not working with the even more modern current crop of world-class players either at his disposal or around Europe at the moment. So we're narrowing down the field to any appointment at any club with world-class players to somebody who's been a world-class player in the past. Well, the other thing to remember, of course, is that these are all absolutely massively resourced clubs that can afford to have additional coaches 
to do the specific jobs that we might envision uh, a head coach otherwise doing. So if they have younger developing players or those that have just broken into the first team who do need assistance with specific tactical elements of their game or technical elements of their game, there will be people around these behemoths to, to do that work with them. Andrea Pirlo is not going to have to specifically work on those things, even though you know, he might want to and he might get involved with it at Juventus. I'm sure that he will because young players will look up to him as well. But they, they need that dominating voice, that experience, that credibility to help galvanise elite players who've already won num numerous trophies. And perhaps the situation at Juventus having won Serie A multiple seasons in succession now is that they perhaps saw that they needed something a little bit different. And having mentioned Messi previously, we, we should redress the balance and, and mention Ronaldo because that might well have been a factor in the, in the decision as well. If you've got a player of his kind of status and stature in the dressing room, then you need to have someone as his coach who even he will admire what they've achieved in the game and what they are able to do with the football at their feet. And in the meantime, they can have other people around PLO to assist him with the other things. That's why maybe the, the age of the squad is important as well for a coach going in. Maybe you want quite a number of players kind of 24 or under that you possibly can mould and treat differently than your 26, 27 and older really established successful players because ultimately they will, the dressing rooms might change from country to country, but you, you would feel that the more senior pros would still have or carry huge sway in the dressing room. So maybe a coach would prefer, Perla would maybe prefer to work with players that he can, who would actually listen to him and not the finished articles at the other end of the, the spectrum. So again, the, the age of, of squads might be uh, what kind of defines how the coaches actually deal with them. So given that it is a context in which it is hard to succeed, an elite level player becoming an elite level manager, you might be by name, but are you by also your successes, your eventual successes, or as may well be in our Select 11, your current uh, success level. So we know that we're going to struggle with defenders because they just don't have, I mean, all of them don't have the intelligence levels that you would expect of most successful humans, let alone... No, centre-backs are fine. It's just full-backs full 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 particularly backs. dim. Do we have uh, many names to choose from as a goalkeeper? Not many. Famously intelligent goalkeepers. I think Part of a union. <laughs> there's three that stand out. So me. Nigel Adkins. Nigel Adkins, world class. <laughs> Bruno Arena. <laughs> Neville Southall. Um, Zoff. Yes, Dino Zoff. I have one name and it's yeah, Dino Zoff. Exactly. Yeah. There, there are two others that I think are probably worth... It. So I, Sorry, I can, can I, why did I say Bruno Arena? Bruce Arena, obviously. Bruno but. Arena is Bruno. a different guy in time. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a he's a wrestler, I think. <laughs> is, he, is he not the Portuguese goalkeeping coach of Jose Mourinho from his second division days? Unless Frank Bruno has added his name to uh, the... the uh, the corporate rights on some stadium somewhere <laughs> in the world. The Bruno Frank, Arena. Frank Bruno <laughs> Arena. Excellent. Why not? So, so I think it probably has to be Zoff. I, I, I think we should all be honest about who we saw play and, and how easy it is to judge who was world-class yeah, from the, from the black and white yeah, days. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I've kind of lent slightly more modern... Well, generally. that might help us choose when we have yeah. more than one in a particular position. The, the only other two goalkeepers who I think have even had... 
vaguely successful careers. Hang on, I'm just going to do some typing. Let me just double check. Well, Gottals was one. Yeah, Dürtels was one. Again, we can't, we can't pretend that we have sort of first-hand experience of that, really. So Dürtels was obviously a great manager, but what, whether he was a world-class goalkeeper is not something we can say. Michel Proudhon was definitely a world-class goalkeeper, but there's a dispute over whether he's a world-class manager. Ditto Walter Zenger, who is not a world-class manager. Yes. Do, um, do you feel clubs, when they're employing, would, would they look the fact that he was a goalkeeper? You well, see them going into coaching and obviously specifically goalkeeper yeah. They tend to go into coaching. Do you, do you think that maybe clubs, maybe it's always been, been true the last 20, 30 years, they would see a goalkeeper and think their fans would see a goalkeeper as your head coach as maybe not quite the right position it to have played. Depends to how famous. Team. Depends how famous they were. Really? I don't think it is. It, yeah. Is it really? No, Walter Zenger, I reckon, got lots of jobs because, yes. on the basis that he was Walter Zenger. But Chinch said earlier that certain positions maybe produce players who understand the game in, in a better way or better at man management or whatever. I wonder if it's the reverse. I wonder if it's that when appointments are being made, clubs and executives and whatever look at certain positions and think, well, that position requires understanding of the game. So they must understand the game to a, a greater degree. And that's why we, we have this sort of self-repeating self cycle that midfielders become mm -hmm. managers but, or but, central defenders become managers. And I think that goalkeepers, and I wonder whether, it never occurred to me until I tried to do this, Goalkeepers, it's definitely true of. There's an assumption that goalkeepers don't understand the outfield game. But I wonder if it's true of wide players in general as well, that people think wide players are more instinctive. And for a long time, winners, it was kind of win play was the ultimate expression of kind of instinctive skill rather than intelligence. And we know that in, in looking for managers that, that people do profile deliberately or indeliberately, certainly yeah, in terms of things yeah. like race, because of the, the shortage of black managers across Europe. But I wonder whether, much less seriously, that also applies to certain positions during your career, that if you played in certain positions, it is assumed you are less likely to understand the game on a tactical level than if you played in other positions. Well, one of them is, you're right, tactical. It's, they, they are considered instinctive, but perhaps uh, also inconsequential and flighty. They're the flippity gibbets of the, the, the formation. And they, are, they are not those who have necessarily well-developed thoughts and processes and philosophies about the game. But also, and here's something to throw in there that, that might be along those lines of what you just described, Rory, they are often diminutive people. They are the yeah. shorter members of a, uh, a football team, particularly wingers, but also uh, left backs uh, and right backs. And so there, there, is a, there, there, there perhaps is uh, an, an, an understanding, albeit un incorrect understanding, that they are not men of great stature. Is and it incorrect? Who knows? Is that literally or figuratively? <laughs> well, there will be examples, I would imagine, of both. <laughs> are managers generally quite tall? What's the average height for a manager? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if you can, if you can think of examples, <laughs> listeners, because we, we don't want to all Google at the same time, managers who are, say, under five foot nine, who were yeah. also wingers, to a certain extent fullbacks as well, but also wingers, five foot nine, under five foot nine, and wingers, and have been successful as managers, or indeed had a managerial career, because you've got short managers who have played positions of more traditional intelligence <laughs> sorry i'm digging a big hole for your chinch but uh, for example scott parker has just got um yep uh, promoted with fulham he is that typical diminutive holding midfielder but because he was a holding midfielder and he controlled games and everything his his diminutive stature does not work against him in the same way yeah I, i'm trying to think of the, the dressing rooms that i was in and the the strongest voices within those dressing rooms tended to be goalkeepers center halves and particularly central midfielders 
something I'd never even thought about before. And it can't just be down to the, well, maybe it is the personalities that play those positions, maybe lend themselves to being more forthright in the dressing room as well. Very true at Everton with Neville Southall, with Dave Watson, with, with Barry Horn. They, they were strong personalities. So maybe where, but they, they played where they played. Was that by accident? Maybe not. Oh, yeah, you didn't tend to find maybe Peter Atherton, but he could play different. He was a very strong character at Sheffield Wednesday, but he could play fullback or maybe centre-half or as a central midfielder, probably centre-half. So, again, Des Walker, the same thing. So whether it is never, ever thought about in those... But even as a player, outfield players did see goalkeepers as a different breed. And goalkeepers do tend to kind of talk about themselves in that way because it is such a unique position. So, again... I don't know whether outfield players are completely having goalkeepers in terms of being footballers. Even though we could never do their, their job, <laughs> they, they, they talked about, oh, if he came out, he could play. Could he really come out and play? Edison at Man City, maybe. He used to play as an outfield player and went back. But ultimately, he's a very good goalkeeper and he's a better goalkeeper than he would be an outfield player. So there is a huge difference there. So does that then change when say a goalkeeper takes over as a coach in the player's mind, even though they might not unconsciously might be thinking, He's not really a footballer, is he? He's a goalkeeper. So again, am I, am I, am I digging myself? You've done, Hugh, you've dug, dug yourself a big... I'm digging myself a huge hole with all my former fellow professionals here as well. But again, this is really interesting. Talk about the kind of people that, that play in the positions that they do. Well, no, but is it, is it that, the, that those positions draw a certain type of person? So if you're an authority, And responsibility person, as well. But is it, or yeah. is it that within football, there is a long-standing tradition and expectation that goalkeepers, defenders, midfielders have to be, to be the loudest as, voices. Captains as well, don't they, yeah. tend to be? Yeah. There's, a, there's a bias towards the spine of the team as being where you mm. need your, your figures of responsibility. So mm. what you then get are people who end up playing in midfield might be quiet as a mouse naturally but part of the job is to be outspoken and to be vociferous and to to be a, an authority which means that when they come to the end of their career people look at them and think well he was an authority while he was in the dressing room so he should get a job i wonder how much of it is is kind of natural and how much of it is just conditioning sort of by tradition this is this is much more interesting than I was expecting this podcast to be. And could be a much broader conversation because let's stop mocking Chinch for a moment and accept no. that he is very good at what he does. And a lot of the pundits and co-commentators that we would hold up as being exceptional were fullbacks. So what is it about having played fullback that aids your transition into well, no, I mean, the world of TV and radio. Well, I no, think the, the, you know, the, the outstanding pundit of his generation is Robbie Savage, who was a defensive midfielder. So it's proof that... that okay, that there is, are exceptions to yeah. the rule, Rory. <laughs> but I, I was trying to get Chinch back on side. Yeah, you, I, I'm always on your side. I'm always on, I don't like you, but I'm on your side. Um, but I've, I I've you liked me earlier. You can't have changed your mind in half an hour, Chinch. Believe me, you've, you've, you've said quite a few things. Uh, See, I always saw... A flighty. <laughs> Yeah, I always saw myself, I'd, I'd never understood even the position I played. Again, with the, maybe the lack of coaching over your career, you never fully understand what you're meant to be doing. I saw myself as very different. I always looked at central midfielders and their spatial awareness, it, it has to be incredible because they have to be thinking what's behind them, what's in front of them to the side. It's, it's an all-round game that they have to play because they're thinking about everybody else's position. Every time a ball is played into them, there's so many things that they can wear. As a fullback, there is only maybe one or two areas ways to actually play the ball so that's why I've always looked at central midfields in particular thought they've clearly got to understand the game a lot more spatial awareness is very different than virtually any other position on the pitch so again maybe they think about central midfielders again is it unconscious I don't know they think about the game they think about other positions and how they can bring the best out of fullbacks and attackers and sense out everybody on the pitch whereas a fullback or a winger is a bit more kind of well I'm just 
thinking about the job that I need to do. I can't really influence too much else on the pitch, whereas a central midfielder clearly can more than anybody else. Well, the thing is, Chinch, is that we're talking about not just who becomes a manager, but who becomes an elite level manager, one of the very yeah. best managers in the world. So is that reflected in the amount of choices that we have to choose from for this team? Yes, it probably is. So yes, yeah. we can extrapolate from, from that point. No, I was just going to say, I wonder whether it's if you, if you play through the spine of the team, you have to have that ability to see the bigger picture, which perhaps aids you in a future career in coaching. Whereas if you were playing at fullback or to, to a lesser extent on the wing, perhaps, you're actually watching other players around you and admiring perhaps what they can do or wondering, you know, you're asking yourself questions about what they're going to do once you've done your bit of getting the ball to them, which maybe drives you in that way of thinking about learning more about the game and, and pass, you know, passing on that information as you do now, Chinch, in your, uh, in your second I can't, I can't remember career. watching Des Walker and admiring the different positions he took. I, I was mainly, probably from 60 minutes onwards, I was worrying about him dropping his shorts in the dressing room, putting his leg up on the, on the, on the bench <laughs> and starting to talk to me about how great his performance was whilst wearing no undercrackers. Uh, but I, no, I think I, I've soaked up, but I, I'm maybe different from Graham Lass or the other guy, or the other fullbacks that are involved in the media. Now. I soaked up everything probably I've learned after I stopped playing. I genuinely believe that I must have had some things that I understood, but actually the game has changed so much as well. And I, I've learned from watching and speaking to people who know more than I do. So I'm kind of more of a, a sponge than had it inherently. But again, it can't be by accident. The team that we're kind of going to pick here, the, the amount of midfielders in it, the amount of fullbacks maybe in the media. Is that true in, in Spain and in Germany? And it'd be interesting to see again, the makeup of the pundits across Europe. Would it be the same as it, it maybe is in the UK? Well, the fullbacks, uh, certainly of your generation onwards, Chinch, have had to work very, very hard as a footballer. So they probably don't want to have to do any more football work. They just mm. want to sit back and enjoy the coffees before the game. And um, we are, are we going to decide on Dino's off? Yeah. Are we happy yeah. with Zoff? Yeah, so, so if yeah. we, if we consider that we are going to have to have a lot of midfielders and perhaps we're struggling with main strikers, if not wide forwards, uh, all that to come, are we going to just try and pick out three centre backs and just ignore the well, fact that we, we don't really have any fullbacks to go. I mean, well, I Alf Ramsey was a fullback, wasn't he, for, for England before he then went on to win the World Cup? But whether he was a good enough class, player. Was he a world class player? I don't know. I yes, I don't know. I think we have to. So I, I, I'm gonna, going to suggest we play a, a sort of revolutionary, revolutionarily narrow 3 4 3 with my, my three names at centre back would be Franz Beckenbauer. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, a wonderful player, World Cup winning manager. Yeah. Um, Frank Reichardt, yes. who's going to struggle yeah. to do a man-to-man marking job, but, mm-hmm. but was obviously a world-class player and was a fairly good manager. Um, Enough to win the Champions League, so that's, I would suggest that that makes you an elite manager. And Maurizio Pochettino. You see, this is where we go back to the issue about playing in black and white, because Trapattoni was a multiple European yeah. Cup winning How about centre-back, Jock Steen? and then multiple European Cup winning manager as well. Jock Steen? Was he centre out? I don't think Jock Steen was that much of a good player, to be honest with you, from what I read. Really? He won the Scottish League in six domestic cups. That's not to be sneezed at. Well, Who did he play for? <laughs> Winning the Scottish League in six domestic cups in Scotland, which is the only place you can win the Scottish Domestic League, <laughs> counts if you do it for a team other than Rangers or Celtic. So basically now we're having to... The, the Scottish side of this argument is going to be kind... If you managed and were successful in Scotland, it, are we saying it doesn't really count then? I wonder if Steen maybe falls victim to the black, to the black and white rule. 
Trapattoni, I'm willing to listen to a debate on, but I don't think we have any any honest way of establishing whether Jocelyn was obviously a world class manager, but we don't have any. I don't. I cannot say with any certainty whatsoever that Jocelyn was a world class player. Just can't. With a lot of the people we'll talk about today, when they put the medals on the table, there's going to be a really massive clang. Yeah. Just to play devil's advocate on Pochettino. And I know we've had this discussion about mm-hmm. before and going back to even what we were talking about earlier on in this episode. If Pochettino had got the Juve job and had won the Serie A title next season and we were having the conversation then, he's a shoo-in. But it, do we not find ourselves in this position where because of lack of silverware, we have to assess whether he's yet part yep. of this conversation, however good a coach we know him to be and how a, however good a player he clearly was. Well, the, the other name that I'd throw in, I'm happy to, to bow on, on Pochettino. The other name I'd throw in as a defender is Daniel Passarella. Yes, well, World Cup winning player and, Matt, was he 78, coach in 78? No, 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 it was... Um, he was playing in 78. Not in 78, uh, but he played in 78. It's a World Cup, World Cup winning player, managed Argentina... Um, just, just in a, just chain a, smoked. Just in a, no, 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 he was, he was the, um, the, um, the haircut guy. Didn't like long hair. Just off the top of my head, I can tell you, purely off the top of my head, I can tell you that as a manager, he won the Primera División in 1990, the Apertura in 91-93. Uh, at Met- uh, Monterrey, obviously, I think we all remember his spell there. Yeah. Won the Tausura yeah. in 2003. Yeah, yeah. Also named the South American Coach of the Year in 1997, which is a pretty dual record, I'd say. <laughs> It's certainly what a pretty good record to remember off the top of your head. No, that's just for off, sure. Literally just... Literally, I think, what about... Just came to you, came what to about you. Ernst Happel? Oh, God. Ernst Happel. No, he's he's going to fall into the, same, into the Scottish. He's won lots of Austrian titles. But again, if you it look... Hasn't. Record, I've got six Austrian titles. Have you really? Yeah. You just turn up and they just give them to you, do they? Yeah, just land, land in, you land in Graz and suddenly you're awarded a championship winner's medal. <laughs> so he seems to have two of the three centre-halves, but we are struggling for the, uh, for the third one, aren't we? Everyone else has been Googling names and Chinch has been going through his old encyclopedias <laughs> that he's Elmer. dusted off since. You seriously think I've got encyclopedias of soccer? <laughs> I don't you know where some of these well. names from, Chinch. They've not got an impression on the internet, that's for oh, sure. Oh, come on. I'm going to, on the basis that we are, we are struggling and we can't necessarily apply the black and white rule to this as um, rigorously as we would like, then, then we have to go for medals on the table and success. And, and that surely is Trapattoni. Yeah. Out, out yeah. of the ones that we have discussed so far. So what uh, we're going, Rijkaard, Rijkaard, Beckenbauer, Beckenbauer and Trapattoni, uh, which, which feels like a sensible back three. Now, uh, midfield. We have so many to choose from. Let's not necessarily consider where they might play in that midfield. Let's try and just get, if we're going to have four, let's try and get the very best four. And is it easy to just really slap in three of those four? What, Guardiola, Ancelotti and Zidane? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. a fourth comes from the likes of Didier Deschamps, who Deschamps, good shout, done it yes. as a player and a manager. You have to say that there are very few of one of world. Well, nobody's apart from Franz Beckenbauer and mm-hmm. Mario Zagallo. Yep, have yep. won uh, the World Cup as a player and a manager. So Deschamps should surely get a, a suggestion there. And I, I have um, Antonio Conte written down, but as, mm-hmm. a, but as um, a player and a manager, he's probably very, very good, but not quite yes. at the very top of the game. I think that shows you the level that we're at when it comes to midfielders, that despite all of the success he's had as both a player and a manager, Conte probably doesn't quite get into this, does he? What about Diego Simeone? Yeah, Simeone. Yeah. I mean, Simeone. I think Simeone probably lacks medals as a player more than anything. Mm. No, notorious Fabio, Fabio as a player. Capello, Capello is, is another one who's, shout, yeah. who's what, what he won um, several titles with Milan, didn't he? 
completely yeah, on top of my head. Yeah. He but the you... titles and uh, two <laughs> domestic cups. Well, right, okay, so clearly, you. this guy knows his stuff. You know, he, he was a very good player, clearly. And he also won titles in two different divi- divisions yeah, different as well yeah. with massive clubs. So well, there you go. Sort of, yeah, Gip- that a bit of weight. The funny, th- the funny thing with Deschamps, because my, my, that was, that was my, my four would be, was Guardiola, Ancelotti, Deschamps and Zidane. Um, Cipello is clearly a better manager than Deschamps. But Deschamps has, I mean, what more do you want? Like he's won the World Cup player, player and a manager, won yeah. the Champions League as a player, got to the Champions League final as a manager with Monaco. You know, he's, 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 he's a funny one, Deschamps. He's not rated particularly highly. And I think if he, if like Didier Deschamps took over at like Tottenham, there'd be a lot of, oh, who's this guy? You know, he, he can't do it. He's not a, he's not a, a fraud. Manager, he? He's a fraud. <laughs> yeah, he looks he's like one of the on. Chuckle Brothers. That's the problem. That's really <laughs> held him back. He would, have, he would have achieved so much more. But no question that Capello is the more significant manager. So given that he was also a highly decorated player, I wonder if we'd go for Capello. If you win a World Cup as a player and win a World Cup as a coach, isn't Can't that kind really of, well, how much... Perfectly suited to this You're talking top trumps here. Yeah. That's, quite, that's quite a powerful card to play from, from Didier's point of view. And it's interesting because we've got, we've got Beckenbauer in there and yes. none of us watch... Well, Chinch, you watch Beckenbauer as play when in you... In his were, youth. My first, my first pair of boots were the, uh, were the Adidas Beckenbauers and they were my pride and joy. So, Only use the left one, obviously. He's going to be in, having been one of the three managers who've done that. Um, we're probably not going to have Mario Zagallo as one of our forwards because no, we didn't see He's getting him. black and whited. Yes, he's getting black and whited the hell out of our team. So does Deschamps, bearing in mind he is the most recent and the one that we are all able to have seen play and also manage, it seems strange that he's not going to be, he might no, be. But to be honest, if, if you put in Trapattoni in, I think you have to, put, you have, to have Capello. That's an Itali- favouring an Italian. So we're going to go with Guardiola, Zidane, Capello and Ancelotti. And then I've we have name. to find three up front unless Chinch has managed to no, go I've got to a name. some sort of Mi- Miguel hole. Munoz. Miguel Munoz? Anybody? Black and Is that, again, what's the, what's the... You can't do that, can you? You can't just say... How good was Miguel Munoz as a player? Oh, <laughs> oh off the oh, top of my tell. head, he won three European Cups. Three this is one of the Real Madrid four La Liga titles and uh, two Copa Latina which we all know was a great great competition and that's the Ricky Martin song (laughs) no 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 it's that's the Copa Living La Vida Loca which is a completely different competition that you really don't want to win much harder to win Chid, did you fly? Did you fly out of Heathrow and go via the British Library so that you could scroll through? <laughs> Listen, the just because I've the done some homework. News reels in this is the one episode where I've actually done some homework on it. Players, people I've never heard of, but again, that's quite an impressive CV that's, that he well, has. Well, that's that's the point. You've never heard of him. But it, out of Guardiola, Zidane, Capello, and Ancelotti, which of those four midfielders would you like to replace with Miguel Munoz? Uh, I, I was just playing devil's advocate. I, I right, couldn't okay. replace any of them. And devil nor advocate is going to get a place in this team. So up front, Ooh. up front, we have to choose uh, from, I've got five names, but one of them is Mario Zagallo. So we're ruling him out. So I've got four names left. And I imagine that one of them is going to be unanimous and easy. And that is Cruyff. Johan Cruyff. Cruyff. Yeah, 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 of course. So we've got Johan Cruyff. Then we have two more to fill. Does anybody else have Kenny Dalglish? Yes. yes. And yes. does any because this might make, make it rather easy. And we're, we're we're getting to the end of the program anyway. But um, does anybody else have Jupp Heinkers? Yes. yes. Or does he get black and white because oh, no, he he's mid seventies? No, no, he's in. No, mid, well, you can't be black and white in mid seventies if they okay. had glorious technical about that. <laughs> glorious technical. And he played in green for God's sake. So that's worth well, remembering. The other one that you maybe have to throw in, and I'm I'm loath to do it because I hate the cult of him, is Brian Clough. 
That is the fourth name on my list of four. Bobby Robson? Was Rob, Bobby Robson the striker? Yes, he was a forward, yes. Wikipedia says he was, yeah. Well, Clough won more than Robson, even though Robson did indeed win a European trophy. And also, okay. Robson was nicer. Yes, it was nice. Yeah, but you can't, you can't not have Brian Clough because of, of people talk so much about Brian Clough. If he deserves to be in there. Yeah, but it was all very Charles, Charlie, Charles when he was playing, wasn't it? It was just loads of people running after the ball and kicking it really hard with their Very Charles, Charlie, Charles. He what, was... big shorts and everything, yeah? <laughs> he still big scored shorts. a billion goals, which is and still quite hard to do. Brill creamed hair. Brill creamed and hair. Uh, a, a career that was cut short by injury, which yeah. we all know is something that we should pay a great amount of heed to. But the, he, he is... It, having the issue about being black and whited because that was the 50s, late 50s to early 60s club. Was that an area of football where you could bundle the goalkeeper into the back of the net and claim a goal? Was that, more, that was slightly later because I think that we've got to draw the line there because you can't, a goalkeeper can't catch it. You headbutt him in the face, he falls over the line and you say, what a great finish that was and claim the goal. Surely that's, we can't have anybody who played in that era because that's nonsense. Okay, in that case, we have a team, ladies and gentlemen, if you are happy with this. We have Dino Zoff in goal. We have a back three of Franz Beckenbauer, Frank Rijkaard and Giovanni Trapattoni. We have four in midfield, Pep Guardiola, Zinedine Zidane, Fabio Capello and Carlo Ancelotti. And our three up front are Jupp Heynckes, Kenny Dalglish and Johan Cruyff. Are we satisfied with that team? We're not going to give them the manager because that completely uh, <laughs> undermines the process. Who would be captain? Who would captain that team? Who's the, so this is a group of people who've become managers because they were good captains. And Beck now we have to choose really. a captain. Beckham from Bauer, captain. Beckham Bauer, Bauer, wouldn't it? Yeah. Beckham Bauer. It's easy. Although Dino's off was a World Cup winning captain. Winning captain. Yeah. Franz Beckenbauer was a World Cup winning captain. Uh, Didier Deschamps. Didier Deschamps yeah. isn't in the yeah, team. So not in the team. <laughs> is he not in the team? Sorry. In the team, He's no, the Miguel Munoz is in the team. Oh, no, we got rid of him for Capello, so didn't we? Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, did so, ladies and gentlemen? There is our team, and at this point, I would like to thank John Wood, the John Wood, not the Buffalo, the John Wood from Huntington Beach, California, who emailed us uh, with something similar to this this week. So, I wanted to make sure that he at least got a name check uh, for thinking along the same lines uh, as us. We're bid in America, aren't we? Well, we must be to get all the way out to the West Coast and no, Huntington Beach, California. We get quite a lot of correspondence from our, our friends across the pond. Yeah, to be fair, Hughie's not going to read out correspondence from, from Skipton, is he? He's going to go with some glamorous name. His place in Britain. It is. But again, is he, he's always going to see a list of things. Mm, yeah, Clacton, or shall I go with, uh, with, with Buffalo? No, I'll, I'll go with the American. The other bit of feedback we had this week was that my sister said that she finds Hugh's voice very soothing. Well, that's funny because your wife finds Steve's voice soothing. Yes. So all we need Me, to do is they get send a... you to sleep when they start talking. It's, That's it's a collection um, of Smiths and we just very, talk at them. It's, it's very strange going to, going to bed now because Kate insists on having like a white noise machine except the, the noise is Steve. Yeah. What's going on? He's lulling her into, like a, into a gentle sleep. That's uh, most of the noise that comes out of my mouth is white noise. So that's, <laughs> it's no trouble to provide it. Um, at this point, normally, we would ask uh, Andy Hinchcliffe to tell us a soccer story. But because he's in Portugal, to reflect the fact that he would normally not even be contributing to the whole programme, we thought we would, and this may well be the final time uh, that we hear from Ewan Haig prior to the point that he actually catches up with us. We thought that we would give Chinch, because he's been working so hard and needs to kind of put his feet up and work those legs, um, give him a little bit of a week off and pr produce this for you instead. From Ewan Haig, our guy who has gone all the way back to the beginning and is catching up very, very slowly. Dear consorts of Kate, Katie, Nikki and Gemma, I have been ruminating on which of my soccer stories to send you as you seek to fill those chinched-sized holes in your podcast schedules. There's the one about my worst football injury. This was a broken arm. It occurred while playing in a particularly robust Sunday league game in central Scotland in the late 1980s when I was tackled from behind while taking a throw-in. 
As I was off the pitch at the time of the tackle, it wasn't a foul. My opponent was not booked and our manager took a look at my arm, poured cold water over it and sent me back on to play. Or it could be the game that I played in front of a crowd on a street in Morocco in 1994 when, recognising my height advantage, the team I joined for a kick around put me up front and I'm soon banging in headers like Duncan Ferguson from in-swinging corners and Neverton training session. But no, I'll tell you this one. It starts in Syracuse, 150 miles to Buffalo and ends in Rochester, 74 miles to Buffalo. I hope that you enjoy it. As a postgraduate graduate at Syracuse University in the middle of the 1990s, the other international students and I would meet once a week in a local park to play. One day, a new guy showed up. He was wearing a Bulgaria shirt and couldn't speak much English. We divided up, he joined my team, and he told me his name was Nasho. We kicked off. I passed him the ball. He slanted him through the entire opposition and slotted the ball past the keeper. 1-0. Minutes later, he'd made it 2-0, then 3-0, then 4. When we sat chatting as best we could after a game in which we had lost all count of the score, he pointed at his Bulgaria shirt and said, Denmark. I was confused. Then he pointed at my Scotland shirt and said, where get? Uh, a shop in Scotland, I replied. Again, he pointed to himself, Denmark. Befuddled, I turned to the only other Bulgarian there, a music student who played trombone. A conversation in Bulgarian followed. It transpired that Atanas Nasho Kirov had one cap for Bulgaria, which he had earned against Denmark. He had just signed for Rochester Rhinos in the US Soccer League, having previously been on the books at Deportivo La Coruña. He was at Syracuse University over the summer doing an intensive English language course, and, most bizarrely, he seemed to be under the impression that I had earned my Scotland shirt from playing for Scotland. Anyway, six weeks later, a group of us drove to Rochester to watch him play for the Rhinos, except that he didn't. On this occasion, much like Rory, he remained an unused sub. Mm. All the best from Ewan Haig. Doesn't say much about the standard or the, the standard with which he held Scottish football in at the time then, because I'm, I'm assuming Ewan doesn't quite have the, the, the capabilities of a former international player. No disrespect, Ewan. And if he was a Scottish fullback, you know, how, how good a player do you need to probably be to get a cap? Chinch, every time you played football after you earned your England shirt, did you wear that England shirt? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in, especially, especially in the bedroom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. Keep your correspondence and please none of those images, mental images, coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Andy and Rory. And to you all for listening, we'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. That'd be good if that was a qualification for wearing a, repl- a replica shirt that you have to, had to have rep- represented that team. Because it's a, it's the converse of the fact that I find it really hard. You know, occasionally you bump into a footballer in like a shop, or you'll see a footballer at a petrol station or at a zoo, just just living their life, living their best life at the zoo or in a penguin enclosure. Or I find it really hard to water park. Exactly. I find it really hard to recognise them, and I think footballers should all have to wear full kit at all times so that people can spot them. Including That's shin pads. Including, including shin, shin pads. especially shin pads. <laughs> and if you've ever been a captain, you have to wear the captain's armband as well. Exactly. However tatty it might be. Even if it's cold, I think you should have to wear a long sleeve shirt of your team so that people can, with your name on the back, so people know it's you. If it could rule out the fact that everybody else wears replica kits pretty much all of the time, I'd be happy with that stipulation being made about footballers. You see a lot of quite, I, I've noticed a lot in, over lockdown of quite natty, quite hipster replica kits. That you wouldn't. I saw a man running in a French shirt the other day, and that's it. It's in Yorkshire. Like, why? Why are you wearing a French shirt? I just think it's interesting that that, that Didier see, Deschamps. It could have been Didier Deschamps. <laughs> just trying to remind you of his significance. Prior to <laughs> this Taking his claim for the select eleven. <laughs> or did you think? I can, still, how, I can still do it, Rory. How many Chuckle Brothers are still alive? Well, there's one of them. <laughs>
Can I clarify, Rory? Are you saying that representing the club as the twelfth man does not qualify you for wearing a replica shirt? No, you do, you or... do not. You do not sign a contract as the twelfth man. That's not a thing. What about if you've represented the club in a tear up in a Yates's wine lodge on the high street? Does that count? It does if you've worn full colours. Yes. <laughs> don't don't have any time for these these people who do it just in normal street clothes. Put your you shirts allowed... on. Put your shin pads on. Have a strap. You're only allowed in from the from the guys on the door at Yates's Wine Lodge if you're wearing full, <laughs> full kit. Yeah, I just wonder. I just wonder whether it stopped people wearing replica shirts if you had to wear the shorts as well. Yes. Because there's yeah, many, yeah. many a man over 50, 60 years old that clearly would not be comfortable in shorts. Do you mean if they were, if it was sewn, if they were all like sewn together as like a one-piece bodysuit? <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't matter whether they're full, separate or together. Full kit romper. <laughs> Got to wear the shorts and the socks pulled up to your like knees. A, like a cycling time trial outfit. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that would put a lot of people off and say, right, I won't bother. I'll just wear, me, uh, I'll just wear my diesel T-shirt.